This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 526 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute pleasure to welcome on the show Cody Gately, Amanda Weathers-Meyer, and Adam Lowe. Now, Cody is a firefighter in Louisiana, and he teamed up with Amanda and Adam, who are at LSU, to undergo a study on the effect of yoga when it comes to mental health in the fire service. Now, what made this very unique, as you will hear, is they were studying various metrics, both mental and physical, but we do not have that much research in the fire service. There are people like Sarah Jenke, who's definitely doing incredible things. But to hear how this study was created, to hear a participant who in this case was Cody, and then to hear the metamorphosis of further studies from this one is not only very interesting to hear, but I think it's very exciting when we're finally looking now at ways to improve our performance and also our longevity. So before I get to this conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on. Subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it more and more visible for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 500 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories, and in this case, studies, so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Cody, Amanda, and Adam. Enjoy. 
Cody, Amanda, and Adam, I want to begin by saying thank you so much for congregating today and coming on the Behind the Shield podcast. Thank you so much for having us, James. It's great to be here. We appreciate this opportunity. We definitely do. Brilliant. So we've got a unique dynamic today. Obviously, you guys are in a conference room. I'm here on the other end virtually. Um, and the the project that you guys have been involved with, whether it's on the research side, whether it's on the participant side, um, is very unique. And, you know, Cody was the first one to tell me about what you guys are doing. And I've been very, not vocal is the wrong word, but it's very apparent to me that there's very little research in the fire service. Some, in my opinion, doesn't need to be done because we can absolutely compare research studies in, in other tactical professions, but some really does need to be done. So I'd love to kind of just take you one by one, kind of walk you through how you got to, to this point now, and then we'll kind of open it up to the room. So I'll start with you, Cody. So if you want to give me an overview of kind of where you grew up and then your journey into the fire service. Absolutely. I was born and raised very near the community where I work now. Uh, my father was a firefighter. I've had the privilege of working two of the same places that he has, uh, just at different times. I'm a career firefighter here at St. George Fire Department, which is just south of the city of Baton Rouge. Been here for almost 12 years, and I, I am second generation, so it's it's an honor. Like I said, it's an honor to work the same places that my father did, just at different times. What led us up to this moment is I walked in on a meeting with Amanda and Adam with some of our executive chiefs when I showed up early for one of our health and safety committee meetings. So please correct me if I get any part of this wrong, but the the topic that was being brought up was a mindfulness-based tactical training study for the fire service. And Amanda, you had some type of grant through LSU to do this, right? That's right. Yep, it was a seed grant. And the, the broad scope of this was for her to do the study on the impacts of yoga for firefighters. And then if it proved success to seek AFG funding for it. And as I sat quietly in the back of the room, I really couldn't hold my tongue anymore. They had this idea of a local level study for the fire service. And there's another fire department about 60 miles west of us that they studied as well. But what I told them point blank out of sheer excitement was y'all are writing history for the American Fire Service and you just don't know it yet. So I explained a little bit of my theory on why I felt that way. Uh, you know, I'm involved in some other organizations that support health and wellness for the fire service, done some work at the National Fire Academy. And I quickly realized that nothing had been done in this area to this magnitude. And I still don't fully think y'all understand the effect that this is going to have. So that's kind of how this idea was born. Um, for as long as I've listened to your podcast, I know where your heart and your mind is with fire, EMS, military, health and wellness. And that's why I brought the idea to you. And here we are. Beautiful. Well, Sarah, same question. So I am from Minnesota originally. Um, I was a dancer from the age of three throughout college and my college studies focused on psychology, sports psychology, exercise psychology originally, uh, and then transferred over to looking at tactical athletes. And it's interesting to hear like Cody's interpretation of how the program started. For me, it's very, very personal. 
my brother's a firefighter and his he's a firefighter up in South Dakota now, but his former fire department, he lost three members to suicide and suicide is very closely associated with post-traumatic stress, which is what I ultimately ended up studying. Uh, and so my brother brought awareness to the issue. And I, remember, I distinctly remember a phone conversation with him. He said, what can be done? Because at the time, I was completing both my degrees at LSU. I have a master's in clinical mental health counseling, and I've just recently finished a PhD in kinesiology. And so he asked, is there anything that you can do as either a clinician or a researcher to help reduce the instances of suicide? Because something has to be done. Um, at the same time, I was taking crisis and trauma. One of the classes required for my degree in counseling I was reading The Body Keeps the Score, which I know this book has been brought up on your podcast probably multiple times. There is a chapter in it that focuses specifically on yoga, which caught my mind or caught my attention because everything I look at is going to be body-based because my, my other background, my PhD is in kinesiology. And so I thought, okay, so that might be a part of the solution, a body-based approach to treating post-traumatic stress. And so I took with it, took that information, both the awareness brought up by my brother, the information I got from uh, Dr. Vanderkolk's book, and merged the two and said, okay, let me try a body-based approach to treating post-traumatic stress. See if that works for firefighters specifically, because there is some, excuse me, there is some research that shows that yoga is effective in treating post-traumatic stress in both civilian and military populations. Um, <clears throat> but to date, there's only one study that focuses on yoga with firefighters. And that looked at general stress or perceived stress as opposed to post-traumatic stress. And so that's kind of the birth of this project and the birth of my career in focusing both research and taking what we find in the research and applying it in my clinical practice as well. Beautiful. Well, firstly, Amanda, I'm sorry, I just called you Sarah. I just published my most recent episode with Sarah Wilkinson. So <laughs> I apologize for that screw up. Um, I said, I'm going to roll with it. <laughs> I'm glad you did. <laughs> I, I was like, I'm guessing Sarah is me. Yeah, we're good, we're good. It was Cody, actually. Um, <laughs> brilliant. Um, well, no, that's going to be a very fascinating thing to unpack. I just went on my own very interesting mental health journey that totally caught me by surprise. And a combination of movement and mindful practice was the answer. Just sitting there um, was almost amplifying what, what I was going through. So I'll, I'll get to that as we progress in. But I think it's uh, with you having the dance background and then the psychology and then the kinesiology, um, you know, you've got all all the attributes to truly understand that. We're just finishing, you know, the the initial questions. So, Adam, same question to you. Uh, so, I grew up in upstate New York. I went to undergrad up there, completed my undergrad, um, and then one of my professors knew a uh, a professor at Louisiana State University. So, I came down here. Had never really heard of Baton Rouge before I moved down, um, and so I uh, started doing research with the athletic teams at LSU. And uh, it was awesome, you know, we worked with, uh, you know, some, we did some really cool research, dehydration, uh, stress. And after I completed my master's, uh, I went on to my PhD, which I'm working on now. 
And uh, I was planning on continuing doing research with the sport teams at LSU, um, which is a great opportunity. Um, but I, you know, Amanda had started working with the fire department or she'd started thinking about it. And, uh, and so I had come along with her and sat in on the meetings and kind of uh, contributed, you know, my thoughts. Uh, and I started to kind of realize that this is really, really cool. Like the difference between, you know, the sport teams and athletics performance and, you know, the fire service tactical athletes, there's a lot of crossover optimizing performance um, in terms of like a physical perspective. Um, but it seems like there was just so much more on the line with the fire service, the, the danger, the stress, the, the implications of optimizing performance in a fire and around the fire service seemed so much more, um, so much more on the line. And so I, I just, it really drew my interest. Um, and so, uh, so I, you know, it helped Amanda with uh, her uh, study first. And, um, and so now we've, uh, I'm kind of moved on into um, functional fitness and designing uh, exercise interventions to, to target that functional fitness, the, the um, occupational specific uh, physical ability. Um, and, you know, I'll tell you the, um, I, with clinical exercise, there's a lot of exercise tests that are very clearly defined. You do, you know, this speed and grade for this many minutes and then this and then this, and it's very uh, written out. It's very formal. And I'm, I'm sure there are more tests that I'm aware of in the fire service that are like that in terms of performance. Um, and I had heard about the a breathe down test, a uh, breath management test, but I had some trouble finding like, this is the breath management test. This is how you run one of these tests definitively. And so I kind of used some of the tests that were published um, and I designed kind of a, a, uh, a breathe down test. And so I ran through it with a couple of the firefighters that um, I had met at St. George. And um, after, you know, eight minutes, they were leaning over, breathing real hard. I said, okay, I got to make some modifications here. They're already out of breath. Um, and so I figured, okay, so if I do this again, I'm going to have one guy, or it's going to be hard to get guys to come back to try this test again, because, you know, this guy doesn't know what he's doing. After eight minutes, you know, the test is over, and that's not really how it should be. And so the next time I ran it, there was six or eight guys who came to, to run this test together. Um, and it, that surprised me. And it, that was kind of the first um, indication that firefighters or these guys are really, really interested in what we're doing and in challenging themselves and in pushing themselves and in optimizing performance and all those things. And that they're not scared of the challenge or something new or, you know, they trusted me enough to, uh, to do a test that they had never done before and they just kind of heard about. Um, and I'm still kind of developing and honing how best to, to analyze, you know, firefighter performance and looking through the research. But, uh, but after those first couple of tests, I said, I got to stick with this because it was just, it's interesting. And there's a, a, a tremendous amount of buy-in and, uh, it's meaningful research, meaningful research. And exactly. the, the guys that we work with, we've been fortunate to work with two really great uh, mm -hmm. fire departments, but the investments was you know, massive. Yeah. And that was kind of what helped me to, to kind of switch my focus from athletic um, sport team research to tactical athlete uh, firefighter research. Yeah, yeah. So we both started uh, with working with athletes and then transitioned to working with tactical athletes, and we kind of come at it from two different ways. My background, my PhD is in kinesiology, but it's in psychological sciences. 
Adams is, you know. I'm in more in uh, kinesi, I will get my degree in kinesiology. Uh, and I also have a uh, certification from the American College of Sports Medicine uh, as a clinical exercise physiologist. And so I'm more in tune with the, the clinical uh, physical functioning. And so it, it fits perfectly in terms of the, the mind and the body uh, optim leading to optimized performance and how, how, how do we get there? Right, we want to make sure that we're tackling both the mind and the body that's incredibly important to us, that it's more of a comprehensive, holistic approach. And so with our research backgrounds combined, we are Captain Planet. <laughs> that's what we're headed for. Beautiful. Well, the first question I want to put out to you is either from within the fire service with Cody's lens or from the outside coming from the sporting space. When you actually started exploring it, what did the landscape of research look like when it came to wellness in the fire service? There is, like I mentioned, there's only one study that focuses specifically on yoga. There's quite a few studies on Functional fitness, I know you can speak more yeah. than I can, but. Yeah, so there's certainly um, a number of studies that have done exercise interventions with the fire service. Um, there's several really great studies published in uh, the Journal of uh, Strength Conditioning Research. And uh, I, some of my research and my thoughts have kind of followed along to what they've done. Um, and with a lot of that research though, is a little bit more geared towards um, in a gym with equipment that is traditional gym equipment prescribed in a very traditional uh, way, maybe more specific with mesocycles and, but very specific with reps and sets. Uh, but the fire service is certainly not, you know, you can't fit in a box or in a gym like that. Um, and so the equipment they use, the number of reps or sets that a firefighter would perform in a fire or doing their other duties, is, you know, it's very untraditional and not, you know, prescribable, uh, you know, and so the, my focus, and there's some research on there, but there's very, not as much using uh, firefighter equipment and you doing, performing firefighter specific movements to, uh, to attain that like specificity of training that is, you know, geared towards firefighters. You know, like you'd say, you could train like a football player and see physical improvements as a firefighter but maybe not as uh, as well or not optimized um, as if you were training to be a firefighter. And that's that's kind of out of the thought is to take that, um, you know, athletes have a strength conditioning coach, they have athletic trainers, they have all these, um, you know, resources to optimize their specific duties. And, you know, a linebacker trains different than, a, you know, a quarterback. And so a firefighter should therefore train differently than all those other uh, athletes. To answer your question, like on the mental health side of things, there I've noticed that there's a lot of research that centers on law enforcement. So if I'm looking at mindfulness-based um, approaches, I, I can think of two articles in particular that focus specifically on law enforcement. Um, harder to find more information on mindfulness-based approaches, whether it's body-based like yoga or tai chi, or whether it's um, more of a like, traditional kind of classroom type setting like a mindfulness-based stress reduction. So that information isn't as prevalent um, on the fire service side of things. The type of literature that is prevalent when you're looking at uh, firefighters specifically is the prevalence of post-traumatic stress or depression or sleep deprivation. And so it's 
it seems to me that the research is really highlighting the areas of improvement, but not so much the interventions that could um, improve those areas. And so that's lagging a bit behind, not to say that there's not research out there, but um, it definitely is lagging behind. And in comparison to law enforcement, there's less research out there. And then EMS is trailing even further behind the fire service. Yeah, it's because it's been really interesting. I, I got my degree in ex-phys, um, so you know, I have somewhat of a background. Not, I'm not that's not my area of expertise, but um, knowing research, knowing how much is done, even in the military, when you look at the fire service, even some of the studies that like Sarah Jenke and some of those guys are doing some great research out there. But again, the specificity, and you you see it even in some of the creation of, for example, you know, peer fitness trainer as an athlete, as a coach, as a um, you know, uh, someone who graduated from an ex-phys program, I look at some of that and I see the disconnect too. Like, you know, there's bands and Swiss balls and stuff. And it's like, well, we're wearing gear. You know, it is it's it is completely different. And, and you know, sadly, there's other areas that are being researched, like sleep deprivation, that you just don't need to research. They don't sleep every third day. I can tell you now for free, James's paper, there is sleep deprivation in the fire service and anyone that works shifts. But you know, as you said, what I don't see is good um, research in what's working. What are the tools to fix this? What I would love to see is, for example, you know, research on 42-hour work weeks versus 56- and 72-hour work weeks. Now, again, it's common sense, but so many people want to see the numbers. Let's see how these, these shifts are you know, destroying our firefighters with the injury rates, with the mental health issues, with all those. I guarantee you that would be a you know, landmark study as well, but we don't see that. You know, We see these kind of myopic studies that... Um, you know, the carryover isn't very good. So, you know, with what you're doing, I think it's very exciting. Now, Cody, with your lens as a firefighter and being in the wellness side, again, what what were you seeing as far as the tools available to us from within our, our siloed profession? From before Amanda showing up with some of the resources that she had, we had the the traditional approach or the traditional menu. You know, we had an EAP um, with all the pitfalls that everybody's aware of that we can't embrace solutions fast enough for. Um, we have an annual fitness or, or an annual physical program here that's pretty good. We go through an executive health track with a local hospital. We're leaps and bounds ahead of area fire departments. We have a little bit better than normal fit for duty program that I actually just had to go through coming back from an illness. Um, so we were a little bit ahead of the curve nationally as far as physical health and wellness. I think we still suffer to a certain extent nationwide like any other emergency service does on the mental health side. That's improving, you know, with the partnership with Amanda and some of the resources that we brought. So I would say before they showed up and started doing some research to highlight all these opportunities for growth, we were above status quo, but not by much at the moment. Right. But with that being said, then, so tell me, you know, what was the aim of the study? What was the hypothesis? And walk me through how you conducted it. Because I know, Cody, you were actually a participant in that study. I can talk to you about the, the aim and the hypotheses. Um, I wanted to look at yoga as a complementary treatment, so not a standalone treatment, um, not the only treatment. But I did want to look at yoga as almost like a backdoor method to introducing therapy to firefighters, because I know 
with my brother and with, in working with firefighters that they're maybe a group that's more reluctant to seek out traditional mental health treatment. And so I thought, well, what about a backdoor approach? What about introducing something and not really packaging it as therapy per se, but there are therapeutic elements and benefits to yoga. Um, and I was interested in yoga specifically because it's a mindfulness-based physical activity. And it's that mindfulness piece that seems to be like the, the real important part of why it's maybe so effective. Um, there's a hypothesis out there, and this wasn't something that I addressed in my study, but it I'll look back to that in a bit. But the, the hypothesis that's out there is that mindfulness-based activities, including yoga, can somehow engage regions of your brain that are offline. And then those that are stuck online, turn them offline again, or vice versa. So it could potentially change the way that the regions of your brain are speaking to each other or whether they're activated or not activated. Um, and like, like I said, that's not something that our studies that we've conducted here can address. What we could address is, would firefighters be willing to engage in yoga or do something mindfulness-based? That's kind of outside the box. And yoga has its own stigma, admittedly. It's, um, I did a qualitative piece of the study, and so I heard a lot of different uh, perceptions of what yoga was before they went to the study. And my favorite was Northern Bullshit. That's my absolute favorite. <laughs> <laughs> description of yoga or ballerina moves or dance moves. That's something that I you know, commonly heard. So admittedly, yoga has its own stigma, but I thought maybe it has a less of a stigma compared to traditional talk treatment or talk therapy. Um, and so I wanted to look at yoga as a backdoor treatment for post-traumatic stress specifically. So not perceived stress, not general stress, but post-traumatic stress. Um, and so I looked at PTSD, the actual diagnosis, but I also looked at psychological constructs that are associated with it. So the things that go hand in hand with post-traumatic stress. Um, I looked at three different variables. It, they sound very psychologically jargony, so I'll try to condense it down. But I looked at PTSD, the actual diagnosis, um, emotion dysregulation, which I guess in, in layman's terms is kind of that that irritability, that lashing out when you get at home. Um, and I'm not talking about like beating on spouses. I'm talking about like those short, angry outbursts uh, that you have like maybe with your kids or maybe with your spouse or maybe even with yourself. Uh, so that's an example of uh, emotion dysregulation. So it's it's an inability to use um, appropriate emotion regulation strategies. It's also, it involves a uh, an absence of awareness and understanding of emotions. Um, it also is a inability to use or to control impulsive behaviors. So that's kind of the definition of emotion dysregulation. So I looked at that. Uh, I looked at interoceptive awareness, which hang in there with me. I know that sounds incredibly jargony, but it's boiled down to it's an understanding of what's happening within. So it's, in this case, it was a focus on bodily awareness. Anything from, do you notice your posture when you're talking to somebody to, do you discredit pain? Do you notice pain? Um, do you notice an increase in heart rate? Do you notice increase in heart rate when you're angry? So that association between your body and your emotions. So that's interoceptive awareness. And then the last uh, construct I looked at was 
Alexa Thymia, also incredibly jargony. So it's just an inability to describe and attend to feelings. So I looked at four, to sum it up, <laughs> PTSD, alexithymia, emotion dysregulation, and interoceptive awareness. So three of those four, the PTSD, alexithymia, and emotion dysregulation, they can be grouped together into something called post-traumatic stress symptomatology, which I'll call PTSS for short, for obvious reasons. It's difficult to say. Um, but interoceptive awareness has an inverse relationship with PTSD. So as your awareness increases, symptoms of PTSD decrease. And uh, yoga has been associated with increases in interoceptive awareness. So I wanted to look at all that kind of holistically, collectively, see if it helps with not just the diagnosis of PTSD, but the things that go hand in hand with PTSD. And so the hypothesis is that yoga is going to increase interoceptive awareness, decrease those other constructs that I just talked about. And in short, that's what we found. We'll, I'll go into that in more detail in a bit, but I want to make sure that everyone else has a chance to <laughs> chime in. So there's kind of two parts to that study. Mm -hmm. The main part was definitely Amanda's looking at the psychological um, outcomes. Mm -hmm. Uh, but we figured if we're doing yoga with firefighters, we've got to throw on a physiological uh, component. And so uh, we looked at heart rate variability um, as well as salivary cortisol. Uh, we took some uh, blood draws, looked at flexibility. Um, and so I'm, I'll only talk about the heart rate variability uh, today. But we, uh, our hypothesis was that uh, the yoga intervention would increase heart rate variability. Um, and heart rate variability is kind of a way to measure the fluctuations in your heart rate and the, the time between your beats. Um, and I think a good analogy is that your heart isn't a metronome. So it shouldn't beat at a consistent pace with no variation, um, even at rest. And so you have your parasympathetic where you kind of rest and digest and your sympathetic, your fight or flight um, signals. And so those, as well as your breathing, um, and different things in your body kind of alter the space between your heartbeats. And so uh, someone who's healthier has a healthy heart. Um, there's small fluctuations, even at rest, and it's always fluctuating and it's dynamic. Um, but someone uh, more of an unhealthy heart rate variability would be constant. There's very little variance. Um, it doesn't fluctuate. It's not dynamic. It's a little bit more static. Um, and so it's kind of like flexible. You need to be flexible. And when you become more stiff, that's kind of an unhealthy uh, indication. And so there's a million ways to measure heart rate variability, but uh, you know, we looked at a whole pile of them and we hypothesized that across the board, that in every way you look at it, heart rate variability would increase. You'd become more healthy um, through this uh, mind and body intervention. So just to... I'm sorry, just to throw it in. So just so um, I make sure that my understanding is correct. So many of us are very, very rarely able to get into parasympathetic because of the hypervigilance, because of the sleep deprivation. So that that consistent lack of variability, that, that metronome style heartbeat is because we're stuck in that sympathetic. Yeah, absolutely. And so um, the parasympathetic uh, 
signals will normally bring your heart rate down to closer to 75 beats per minute or even lower. Um, and without that parasympathetic activation, your heart rate maybe rests around 100 or a tad bit higher. And so it's important that your parasympathetic is constantly, especially at rest, pulling your heart rate back down. And even after, after a fire or after exercise, your sympathetic, your heart's still beating pretty fast, but you have your parasympathetic coming back in and starting to help you rest and digest and recover. But with periods of chronic stress or activation, hypervigilance, um, your parasympathetic can become desensitized. And so it slowly has, is less and less active. It's giving fewer and fewer signals to pull your heart rate back down to get your body into a recovery mode. And so uh, a good analogy is if you were in a car and you have your foot on the gas and the brake, um, and so you need a little bit of gas, a little bit of brake, uh, but then you got a light coming up and turns yellow, you need gas to go through the light so you have a, a period of activation, but then you need to be able to hit your brakes and slow back down so that you're driving safely. Um, whereas if you your brakes kind of wear out, if you're, you know, you're too much gas, uh, you're not able to slow yourself down um, and it's go, 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 which is good in, in high, high intensity situations where you need your body prepared to fight or run or it needs to be active, but then it also needs to go back to that resting state, which is the long-term healthy state of resting, digesting, building muscle, those type of things. Right. Your car needs both an accelerator and a brake. All cars have that or the issue is if you're stuck on the accelerator, which is the sympathetic, and there's no braking system, which is the parasympathetic, which you've noted is uh, less activated. There's less engagement with that branch of the ANS. Um, and you're right that that's it goes hand in hand with post-traumatic stress too. So you might not reach a diagnostic level of PTSD. But if you do, PTSD is associated with less activation of the parasympathetic nervous system. And yoga has been shown to kind of, I don't know, I guess facilitate, facilitate, kind of bring that back into action. You know, resensitize. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Beautiful. Well, Cody, anything to add? <clears throat> I want to circle back to the beginning of what you said about firefighters' perception of yoga. Now, yes. mind you, James, this was an eight-week program mm -hmm. that we went through. It was two days a week. So just about, yeah. We work what some would call the modified Kelly, like the Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and then four days off kind of deal. So we were usually coming to yoga two out of three days of the tour yes. for eight weeks. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I want you to I want you to tell him what firefighters were saying after the study. What did they think yoga was after the study? I can probably best describe that in drawing on the qualitative side of this study. So the perception and the reaction really surprised me. I did do a, a kind of a informal poll at the end of the study to see if firefighters thought that there was a good match between the fire service and yoga, or is it applicable, or is it fitting or suitable? Um, I'd say just the majority of participants agreed at the end of the intervention. Now, that's very different than the beginning of the intervention. Um, but the stories and narratives that I heard when I was interviewing some of the firefighters that participated were just, they were mind-blowing to me 
Some were saying that they've integrated it into their home life or they're using yoga with their significant other. Um, I have one firefighter mentioned that his significant other had ADHD and that he hoped that he could translate this practice over to her and help her in her own areas. Um, the stories were incredible. And it, what really shocked me is one in unanticipated outcome of yoga is originally I thought yoga would have to be like a backdoor approach to therapy, but it's almost like it was like a gateway. So throughout the yoga intervention, people were reaching out to me through text, through email, calling me asking, Hey, I'm starting to attend to my mental well-being with this program. Could you recommend a counselor for me to say, to help with X, Y, Z? And it really shocked me. So I think I got it wrong. Firefighters are willing and capable of going, seeking out talk therapy. It's almost like that there needed to be a catalyst or not even a catalyst, but a bridge, somebody to help connect them to, or a, a guide, if you will, to connect them to mental health providers. There's a there's a gap between the fire service and mental health providers. Yeah, well, I think one th- one thing I saw in my last department really explained that whole requirement of buy-in by police, fire, military when you come in as a counselor, as a you know a strength and conditioning coach, whatever it is. They spent a huge amount of money on a local sports um, you know training place to come in. And I remember this one presentation was given. It was actually a good presentation. A very good-looking young woman was presenting it. And it was on sleep deprivation. She's like, so to conclude, you all need to sleep more. And then she left. <laughs> you know, no solutions. Now, I don't know if she even touched on sleep hygiene very much. But uh, what it should have been is here's some arguments for maybe going to your union and telling you that we need to start changing the shift patterns. But um, then the same organization... They, uh, you know, they have guys and again, you know, Swiss balls and bands and all this stuff. And then one of the last ones um, before, basically, I went, I actually went to him and said, look, you can save all this money. We've got some good trainers in the department. We'll, we'll, you know, do this ourselves. But she got them to walk around the building twice and then show them how to make oatmeal. And these are people that, you know, that right next to my station was a 28 story tower hotel. You know, so mm-hmm. to climb that with a hundred pounds of gear and then fight fire, two laps around a building and a bowl of oatmeal is the biggest example of disconnect I've ever seen. You know what I mean? So I think that's the the, the problem initially that we've got is there are some great people that understand yoga for first responders, great organization. They totally understand mm-hmm. us. But mm-hmm. a lot of these departments have, you know, and even sent people, you know, they, they think that a two day seminar is going to turn firefighters into the world's best coaches. It's not. They come back and they really don't know what they're doing still. So I think that's one of the things that I've seen as, as a causation for a lot of that disconnect. So when they find someone who knows what they're talking about that can connect with our profession, you go from resistance to buy-in because you've, you've developed trust, basically. Yeah, that was absolutely key. And I know it might be kind of getting off topic, but there's we're in the middle of a... a third study, I guess, focusing specifically on counseling and trying out different modalities to see if certain delivery modalities will resonate better with firefighters than like with the general population. 
Um, and one of the things that I had to do as a researcher and as a clinician is to put myself out there, to go and do ride-alongs with the guys, to see what they see. That was incredibly important to me. And I think to the guys, too. And Cody can speak more to that. Well, it brings credibility, validity, and it brings relevancy. And your story about your brother having the trouble, uh, firemen can, firefighters can immediately relate to that. They can immediately relate to the relationship that you have and the desire that you had for some type of intervention. And the, the change in the perspective on yoga was, I was just as guilty as the next person whenever this became a concept. It was, oh yeah, we're all buying leopard yoga pants and we're going to do this. But when it came time for the rubber to meet the road, I, I think I was one of many guys that was looking for a solution. There's a lot of us out there, James, I, I know you're well aware of this. There's a lot of folks out there in our professions that have a lot of unprocessed trauma. And I was looking for something. And if Amanda, your desire was a backdoor approach to therapy, you know, therapy in disguise, it worked. It, it very much worked. And it's opened up, God, I, I can't even begin to tell you the conversations that we're having about mental and behavioral health and wellness and the plans and the support that we have from our executive leadership now. I mean, we've got a, we've got a train coming down the tracks with no brake. It's, it's wonderful. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, I want to just interject a personal story and then we'll get to how the study was conducted and then the results. Yeah, um, yeah. I actually put out a video about a week ago now I went back to Europe after three years of not being able to see my family because of this pandemic. Um, and unbeknownst to me, I was in the deep, one of the deepest holes I've ever been. I've been through a divorce. I had a, a pretty significant thing going on with my son that definitely was some of the lows of my life. But this was the best way to describe it is that analogy where they talk about the frog in the, the saucepan, you know, and he doesn't realize he's cooking as it slowly warms up. That was exactly what happened. And when, Amanda, when you talked about some of those different uh, elements of PTSD that you were talking about before, the, the anger was something that I saw in myself earlier on. But then, and it's almost like, you know, fight, flight, but then you've got freeze as well, submit, you know, deer in the headlights. I got to the point where I had no emotion. Like I had some things that normally would have caused an adrenal response and it was nothing. Like just flatline on my emotion i couldn't i wasn't happy i wasn't anything just just gray Gosh. the color gray and so when i was there i was overseas i was with my family i made myself start meditating and doing yoga and i used the headspace app and they've got yoga on there as well and at the time i was still you know um having drinks with my family not binge drinking but you know socially drinking hadn't seen them for a long time and you know we're that's one of the things that we do healthily normally um and so i just made it diligent and that was for basically two weeks i did that when i came home was day zero of not drinking which has been like two and a half weeks now i think and that groundwork of the yoga and that movement along with the meditation it started to work and very, very quickly, I find myself, found myself back out of that hole again. But I can personally relate. You know, I don't normally have depression. I don't normally have anxiety, but I feel emotions. I feel sadness. I feel, you know, anticipation. Um, so when you talked about that, have you seen that that 
the anger element precedes that complete um you know lack of emotion that lack of um connection with your emotions i'm not sure if i've seen it in that kind of like linear fashion i think it can coincide so you can have moments of like those irritable short outbursts of anger or frustration and then the next moment feel absolutely nothing so that's what i mean by coincide is they're not necessarily um they can overlap they can exist at the same time um and so i haven't really looked at when when do they occur does one occur before the other but i have seen them coexist and i've seen that in just my work with my clinical work with firefighters and hearing their stories working with them um, in a counseling context. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I had a movement guy, um, Julian Pinot, and again, he talked about um, exercise in the nervous system. And again, you have flow, which obviously we're in that great place where everything is fantastic. Then you have fight, which I think, you know, is an everyday response to stress. And then flight to me is the kind of anxiety, depression. And then what what's scary, I think, is that freeze is almost that acceptance that can lead some people then to suicide. And I was in some arena of that. I wasn't having suicidal ideation, but I was definitely completely disconnected from my consciousness. And it was it was scary. I've never been there before. So it may not be linear, but I would say if someone's been on edge and is constantly, you know, biting back and is that that angry phase and all of a sudden they seem calm. I've heard this from some other people in the past. That's a huge red flag as well, that maybe they're in more crisis than when they were actually angry. Yeah. That's a very valid point, yeah. And I can hear the, the, the fear that that gray area that you were talking about, I can hear it kind of bubbling to the surface when you're telling your story. It's, it's not something that I personally have experienced, but it's... It's got to be terribly unsettling to realize I'm not, I'm not feeling anything. It's, nothing's impacting me. Yeah. Well, especially as, again, I wasn't having flashbacks. I wasn't haunted by certain calls. I wrote about a whole bunch in my book and that brought some to the surface. But again, it wasn't, it was kind of, you know, cathartic writing. So that was, I think, you have the acute events and the people that suffer, but I don't think most of us realize that just what we do every day takes a toll. The shift, you know, the shift work itself, what we see. And for a lot of us, it's a slow burn. And eventually that, you know, there's, there's that point. And if you've got good coping mechanisms like meditation, like yoga, like, you know, good nutrition and exercise and daylight and family, um, you can absolutely balance it. But if there's an offset, for example, a pandemic that keeps you away from your family and adds stress and divides the country and things like this, all of a sudden that balance has shifted without you realizing and understanding what some of these places look like, I think is very important as well. Knowing that these tools work, but also knowing, all right, where am I on the scale of zero to 10? I think something Amanda has said in the past is that um, yoga is not necessarily... um, explicitly telling you what to think or like picture yourself in a you know a field but it kind of helps uh direct your thoughts or kind of control the the chaos 
into a little bit more focused on your body and that that movement movement based um, mindfulness kind of re is what reconnects it because you have to think about your body. You can't think about all the things you're worried about or or whatever. You have to think about maintaining position and. And it, that's really what helps it is the directing of your thoughts. Yeah, it gives you a focal point. And mm -hmm. so it's important to point out that mindfulness or meditation can show up in different ways. So there's some people that might be able to actually walk through meditations, whether guided or unguided. But there are others that it's unbearable to just sit with stillness. And so yoga is a it's a nice alternative so you're focusing on the moment you have to or you're not able to maintain the posture the poses um, but it gives you a focal point and so your mind doesn't wander as much you don't feel as overwhelmed and Cody you're nodding your head so please chime in spot on <clears throat> it is it, it almost force, forces you to focus on the task at hand and you are able to truly clear your mind of everything what you but what you're doing but what's in front of you yeah well you talked about the body keeps the score i mean one of the things that i found is when when i sat it was almost unbearable because i had this burning knot in my stomach that therefore obviously was the anxiety element of the depression i guess i was having searing pain on my left flank and again i think it was just a manifestation of the turmoil in my mind on my body so you you had that and i was able to sit with that you know i wasn't i wasn't unfamiliar with this kind of thing but the yoga element was then connecting the mind and the body you know and acknowledging okay there's tension here and then starting to be able to address it and again while you're focusing on that you're not thinking about everything else and what i found personally and the analogy i use those little um uh god what they call the the um lottery drawings the live drawings they have the ping pong balls in that little cage and they're flying around everywhere that's how my mind was before after meditation and yoga it was like someone turned the fan off those those stresses are still in there you've still got to you know clean the house and you know edit in my case podcasts and do interviews and stuff they're still there but they're not bouncing around and repeating themselves over and over again and that was huge and i've seen you know the effect of body and mind and if you, and the things with yoga if you if you're doing that with or without meditation you know you're addressing uh, it's a double-edged sword you're addressing from two sides um so yeah i mean that that was a huge thing for me was recognizing where i was trusting that that was working and then you know it's night and day and it's been i've only been home just over two weeks so i mean it's been amazing but the real key thing was right at the beginning when I recognized it, when I didn't feel like doing it, I did it anyway and laid that foundation. I think that's what um, doing it in a group, like we'd have full whole firefighter crews come in and even from different stations to do yoga at the same time. And I think that helped because uh, it, it can be tough to like sit in your room or in your house and do yoga or do anything, exercise by yourself versus when it's in a group, maybe you're hesitant, but you do it because everyone else is doing it. And it kind of, it helped facilitate that group mentality, the, the engagement. And then, you know, maybe you feel a little bit less silly because you're not good at it, or you just feel awkward, but everyone else is doing it. And so it's easier to, to start, um, yeah, to kind of get in, into doing that. Right, and we were fortunate with both the departments that we work with, they allowed this to occur on shift. 
mm-hmm. which was incredibly important because I know a lot of firefighters work two, three, four jobs. When is there time to attend to mental health, much less yoga? I mean, that can fall to the wayside pretty quick. And kudos to you for keeping it up, mm-hmm. you know, for two weeks. Um, it's tough. It's tough to initiate a new behavior, particularly exercise, maybe one that's unfamiliar, um, and then keep up with it. So the departments really facilitated adherence or um, the continuation of doing yoga because it was on shift. And like Adam mentioned, um, combined with a story that I heard from a firefighter that participated, he, he mentioned that um, the guys don't get to get to, the guys and women, they don't get to come together in groups unless there's a significant issue, a significant trauma call. Um, and so we were pulling together multiple houses, collapsing them down into the headquarters or their training facility. And so they got to experience a positive together, which doesn't happen often. It was, it was tribal, James. <laughs> well, you know, I love that word. I do, but that's exactly what it was. You know, guys that I would only otherwise see on duty at a second alarm, yeah. we were coming together to exercise. It was it was tribal. Now, just from the firefighters' point of view, and I want to walk through, you know, what this this uh, looked like, and obviously the results. But from boots on the ground, let's say, I don't know, three or four weeks into it, um, did you notice that there was more discussion? Just you've done your yoga, and then after, just just open discussion. The reason I asked that, I had a guy, Tom Hewitt, who um, has a thing called Surfers Not Street Children in South Africa, and they take street kids and they teach them how to surf, teach them how to swim first. Um, and then after their surfing session, they do a therapy session on the beach, and they find that after that physical release, these kids are much more open and much more available for the counseling because obviously a lot of them have you know huge trauma. Um, were you seeing people opening up after the yoga sessions when when you know when the when the session is done and maybe you're in some communal space? Not immediately, and the reason I say that, and we'll talk about. <clears throat> the logistical rollout of this eventually, but there were two sessions each afternoon. So as soon as one session was over, it is unfortunately get your unit back, your uniform back on, get your unit back in service because the next rotation has to come. So there was, there was one group that suffered immediately from, okay, six minute rest in a dark room with nice music is over. Get back on your 80,000 pound fire truck and go to work. I'm not saying that the efforts for the session were in vain, but the cool down period, we were immediately brought back to real life. Now I went in the second session every day. So, well, for the most part, I went in the second session. So we did have a few minutes to linger and discuss and take a minute to get our uniform back on and chat for a few minutes while we rolled the mats back up. And it was good, but we weren't, opening up about anything specific. And, and quite frankly, after the first session, James, I was really upset. I was really upset because I knew I, I was in the session with the busiest company in our fire department. 
And I had realized all the benefit of what had just happened. You know, we had stretched, we had done strength conditioning. Uh, we had our rest time and everything. And these folks are about to get back on a fire truck. And from the time we leave here to the time they get off in the morning, they're going to run seven more calls. Okay. So I was, I was immediately upset. I'm like, this is all for nothing. Like we just did all this good and all this therapy, but this was all for nothing. So these guys are going to run all night, but it, it morphed into something good. I mean, everybody found value in it over time. And that's legit. I'm not saying that just because you're sitting here. <laughs> everybody found value in it. But after that first session, when I realized the gravity of what was happening, I was really upset. Yeah, I mean, there's a stark contrast. So, I mean, I totally understand that, you know, and I think, you know, the other thing that's probably weighing on some people's minds is the other crews are getting their asses handed to us while we're training, you know, and the so, value of the training is so important, but that's another weight. If you're a, you know, if you're a tribal person, if you're a team player, there's that element of guilt because you're doing your exercise while they're covering you and maybe running even more calls but you know obviously it plays back the other way too but it's still one of those other barriers to entry is well i don't want to i want to put out my crew while i'm doing this so let me set the scene for you for what was going on within our fire department when this study happened all right when did when did it start the eight weeks of yoga start it was spring of last year september we went through hurricane season okay so fall of last year um, in our fire department of about 200 employees we had 11 of us in paramedic school we had advanced EMT classes with about 20 people per shift that would run from 9 to 3 every day and we were also in the process of replacing our entire fleet with a brand new style of unit with uh, a whole different pump operating system on it. Like the, the way we pump fire trucks now is not the same. We were in a massive transition and growth phase and I want to emphasize growth. And then they brought this to the table and I'm telling you, our executive chiefs would have had every right and every opportunity to say, no, we can't facilitate this right now, but they didn't. They still said yes. Hats off to our assistant chiefs, our shift supervisors that were handed this puzzle every day and made it happen. This guy needs to be here at eight for a certification eval, advanced EMTs from nine to three. By the way, you got a guy doing a clinical tonight and these trucks need to be here for four o'clock and these trucks need to be here for five o'clock for yoga. And they made it happen every day. Now, for everything good about that, there were some unintentional consequences like I talked about earlier. In an effort to get all the people here who voluntarily participated in this program, there were some people that were, let's just take engine whatever. Two out of three crew members might've been in the yoga study, but their officer or another one of the firefighters assigned to that unit chose not to be in it, but they were stuck at administration for an hour <laughs> while we did our thing. Now, they had every opportunity in the world to join. Um, and we actually had quite a number of people that expressed interest two or three weeks in say, I'm, I'm hearing great things about this and I want in. And unfortunately, we didn't have room for everybody to jump in at yeah. that moment. 
So there were some people that, there was a small group of people that were inconvenienced by the logistics behind this. But man, with everything we had going on at the time, I still stand behind uh, the appreciation of our executive chiefs to say yes and facilitate this and still beyond thankful for the ability for our shift supervisors to make this happen every day. Yes, we had cover companies that were running extra calls. We're James, we're such a small department. We've got eight stations and they're spread out just far enough where if a single engine house was scheduled to come here, they had to have a cover company. We needed to have somebody in their area covering. So that was happening behind the scenes as well, but we made it happen. And I think it was an overwhelmingly positive outcome. Beautiful. Well, let's get to the logistics then. So tell me what the study looked like and then let's transition into the findings. Yeah. Um, it was a quasi-experimental design, so we didn't have a control group. But that did mean that everybody got the intervention, the treatment per se. Uh, like Cody mentioned, the actual intervention period, the yoga classes, they lasted eight weeks. So each person should have received about 16 classes. That's without, well, this also ran during hurricane season, so it, <laughs> it wasn't perfect. <laughs> But um, the way the study was set up is that I took the psychological measures six weeks before the intervention started. We waited six weeks. Um, the yoga intervention lasted eight weeks. And then after the intervention ended, we waited another six weeks before I took the um, psychological measures again. And that was, since we didn't have a control group, we wanted to see if there'd be any changes between what we call T1 and T2. Those are the two time points before the intervention actually started. Because if we saw differences there, then we're knowing that the differences that we might have seen between T2 and T3, that's the intervention period, they're kind of a, a moot point because something else is causing those changes. Um, so that's the risk that you run when you have a study that doesn't have a control group. But the reason we did it this way is because we received feedback from AFG saying, we like where you're headed with this, but we want to see if this is effective with firefighters specifically. Because like I mentioned before, there are studies in the civilian population and military population that yoga is effective in reducing symptoms of post-traumatic stress. But my argument is firefighters are a unique population. They're different than both those groups I just mentioned because their tour of duty is never ending. There is no coming back to the States and reacclimating. It's, you know, every time that you go on shift, you're, you're being exposed to traumatic events. It might not be like a super heavy traumatic, like a drowning, but it's traumatic to that person. And so you're being exposed to someone else's trauma as well. Um, and so to go back to the actual design of the studies, we wanted to make sure that everybody got the, the treatment and we wanted to lay the groundwork to show that it's effective with the type of post-traumatic stress that firefighters experience specifically. Um, and then we'll take this information, the findings that we got from our study, and then resubmit to AFG and see if we can go a step further. We can look, we can incorporate a control group because then we have a, a stronger leg to stand on, I guess, to say that, yes, these changes that we saw 
most likely attributable to the intervention. Right now, we saw differences between T2 and T3, that's the intervention period. Um, and since we didn't have a control group, we can say, looks like the yoga may have contributed to these, but we don't know for sure. We'll never know completely for sure, but like I said, we have a greater or stronger leg to stand on if we have a control group. That's the next step. And then after that, we can start investigating why those changes may have occurred. So what's neat to me is we could, we could do MRIs. We could see if the brain structure is actually changing, if the way that, like I mentioned before, the, the regions of the brain, are they talking to each other different? Are they being back, brought back online when they were previously offline or vice versa? And so this is just the foundational groundwork for where we want to head. Um, but as far as the findings, we saw changes in all four variables that I spoke about before, uh, directly before the intervention and directly after the intervention. So we call that like a short-term or immediate treatment effect. So we saw that symptoms of post-traumatic stress decreased, emotion dysregulation decreased, alexithymia decreased, interceptive awareness increased. And that's what has the inverse relationship with post-traumatic stress. Again, if interocept awareness increases, symptoms of post-traumatic stress decrease. Or that's what we're seeing in um, correlational studies. So what we can take from that is that yoga most likely contributed to those changes, but we'll need a control group to test it out further. Um, there were two variables, emotion dysregulation and interoceptive awareness that persisted after six weeks. So after the yoga intervention stopped, it looks like people were able to maintain those benefits. What we don't know is what happens after six weeks. So I have a good hunch that if I tested the same guys again, those effects would probably be washed out because they're not practiced. Those are, that's a skill set to be able to effectively regulate your emotion and to be able to facilitate awareness of what's going on in your body, awareness of your emotions, so that's a skill set. And so it makes sense to me that it would need to be continuously practiced to maintain those benefits. Um, during the follow-up period that we saw a loss of the PTSD benefits, so improvements in PTSD symptoms, they washed out. So once yoga stops, you don't get to keep those benefits. It's something that you have to continue. And the same thing with alexithymia. It's the benefits that we saw from the, potentially from the yoga intervention, they weren't maintained or kept over that six week follow-up period. So all in all, it looks, it appears first glance that yoga is effective in improving symptoms of post-traumatic stress. That's including PTSD and the constructs that are associated with PTSD that I talked about earlier. Um, but it looks like you might have to continuously do yoga to keep those benefits, with the exception of emotion um, dysregulation and interoceptive awareness. But again, we only know what happens after six weeks after you discontinue yoga. We don't know what happens beyond that. So that's kind of the synopsis of my findings, at least. Well, it makes sense, too, because you are still working shifts and you start yoga and you see improvements. You're still working shifts and you stop yoga and you see, you know, um, a decrease in, in the 
the uh, the impact of the yoga. So you know, I I think if you had no stresses at all and did yoga, you'd probably see a lot long, a lot greater longevity of the effects. But there's so much stacked against a firefighter when it comes to their mental wellness that we do have to practice diligently. Even the foundation training stuff I do with my back, I've been very sporadic with that, and I'm back on that train too. If I do it diligently, my back feels amazing. I squat well, I move well. As soon as I stop, it starts to fall off again because right now I'm sitting, you know, I'm not moving. And that's the thing about the modern world. So, um, you know, I think that's still fantastic. If we can, if you can show improvements that all we have to do is, you know, practice yoga as of this study twice a week then that's that's brilliant now what kind of yoga practice what did that yoga practice look like was it you know of all the different yoga philosophies which one did you choose yeah so it was developed by (laughs) it was developed by uh, a really just incredible yoga instructor her name's nolan She's also a doctoral student at LSU, so she took some information from this, but she was really the driving force in creating this uh, program, and it wouldn't have been successful as it was if it weren't for her. So she went out of her way to make sure that she took um, the Sanskrit terminology out and replaced it with something that maybe resonates more so with firefighters. So, for example, a lot of the poses, she kind of renamed them. So you're not doing happy baby. You're doing something that's maybe more along the lines of firefighting. Um, so she, let me back up. She, she made sure that the movements that the guys were doing in the sessions somehow translated to bettering their performance on the job. So you're, you're going to need flexibility. You're going to need core strength, you know, to pick up um, equipment or bodies, I guess. So she made sure that that translated well. The movements and the terminology was firefighter appropriate. So she would call movements like cheetah, which is a little bit more palatable than like I mentioned, like happy baby or the Sanskrit terminology, which makes it kind of seem like mystical or maybe religious based uh, or spirituality based. So how was it for you being in the room with <laughs> going through the program. I, I went the whole eight weeks wanting to do happy baby. I never <laughs> got the opportunity. Now, happy baby, oh. you're on your knees. Is that right? With your, your head down? You were on your back. <laughs> oh, that's right. So I call that humbled probie. That'd be a good, t- good name <laughs> that, for that. Not a bad correlation. <laughs> but when, when we did our sessions with Nolan, it was more, she wouldn't call it a specific pose. She would just tell us how to get there. You know, lay flat on your back, preserve the arch, and pull your knee up to your chest. Some simple instructions like that, just to get us where we needed to be and wouldn't necessarily name it. So it's more of a focus on like logistics, like task-oriented. Instructions on how to get into that position. We got a lot of feedback too that the, uh, the participants appreciated, you know, direct instruction um, and feedback on how they were performing the yoga poses. And it wasn't just do your best. It was how to to make uh, it, to do it correctly. And I think they appreciated that, so that you felt a little bit more proficient at uh, kind of a foreign concept potentially uh, for a lot of them. Yeah. Well, we went through the stages really quickly. I remember you telling us at the end, kind of in disguise, 
we went from basic to intermediate to advanced movements in eight short weeks. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and I mean, we had no idea what was going on. We were in there stretching and flopping around and doing the best we could. But little did we know that we had successfully completed something that was anticipated to be really difficult. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, Nolan designed it so there was a specific topic that she was tackling each week. So, for example, one week focused on body awareness. And so she would have the instructors call attention. So when you're in this pose, what are you feeling? Where's the discomfort? Where Are you feeling successful? You calling attention to the emotional and the physiological response to the pose. Um, so it was brilliantly designed, I think. <laughs> I support that. <laughs> but I, I take what I say with a grain of salt because I'm incredibly biased, but... <laughs> <laughs> now, did you... Oh, I'm sorry, I cut in then. Did you also end up measuring flexibility before and after? We did. Uh, Nolan uh, has the data. She's looking through it for her dissertation. Um, and so my uh, my part of this was the uh, heart rate variability. Um, and so we, uh, we looked at physiologically, we measured um, heart rate variability, flexibility um, before and immediately after the yoga intervention. And... Uh, and so uh, when we combined it all, what we had the guys do is uh, go into a quiet room. We had them wear uh, heart rate monitors and then just lay down for 30 minutes. Uh, we instructed them not to fall asleep. Um, and so we had them lay in a dark room for 30 minutes. And, uh, and then when we looked at the, the heart rate data, uh, we were able to look at kind of periods of where their heart, heart rate kind of uh, leveled out, where it was a little bit more stable. So we got a five minute stable period within that 30 minutes. Um, and we used uh, some software to analyze all the different components of heart rate variability. Uh, and what we saw when kind of combined all together uh, at baseline, their heart rate variability looked pretty normal. Uh, and kind of like what Cody was saying is that it's a relatively healthy, uh, progressive department. And, uh, and so they all looked within a, a healthy range, which is good. Um, and then post-test as well, we did not see major changes pre to post in heart rate variability in a lot of the, the major um, components. Um, but looking a little bit more deeply at it, uh, we looked at the correlation between age and years in the fire service and the different components of heart rate variability. And uh, we saw that with age, there was a, a trend towards worsening heart rate variability with increases in age. Um, but kind of more, uh, a stronger correlation we was seen between years in the fire service and heart rate variability. And so, um, and so the longer guys were in the fire service, you know, there was a poorer uh, heart rate variability exhibited, uh, which you know, which seems to make sense because the you know with age you are going to see a natural decrease in heart rate variability. Um, but the, the years in the fire service, the trauma, the exposure, and the, the sleep deprivation, all the things that come along with. Uh, the fire service you know, seemed to really have uh, be exhibited in the heart rate variability that we measured. Um, but kind of even more interestingly, um, post, uh, post intervention, a there was a no correlation between several of those measures. And so between years in the fire service and several measures of heart rate variability, uh, the correlation was lost post intervention. And so you would say that 
no matter how long you were in the fire service, you know, you couldn't tell a difference in heart rate variability. And so it kind of leveled out. It, um, it became a little bit more uh, normal. And so, so that was certainly a positive finding that, um, that it took years off of the fire service. And so guys who potentially were in longer, their heart rate variability looked a little bit more like guys who hadn't been in as long is one way to look at that. Well, Adam, staying with you for a second with the sports coaching lens, what is the emphasis on sleep, rest, and recovery in the sporting athletes that you work with? <laughs> Absolutely. So, and they're getting some, uh, so yeah, the opportunities, of course, are absolutely different. But, you know, I mean, you're looking at eight to 10 hours of sleep, you know, uh, especially in college age athletes, um, resting, the, you know, the stretching, especially after practice, the icing. Um, you know, so static stretching is highly emphasized, which, you know, the firefighters got in, the, in yoga, um, but actually the higher emphasis on, on that rest and recovery, because all of the benefits, you know, that you, um, that you see following training are really uh, stimulated by your recovery. And so in training, you're breaking down muscle fibers, you're, you know, you're weaker after training than you were before. And so in order to refuel, to eat the proper, uh, appropriate uh, nutritional profile, uh, to recover, for to sleep long enough, um, that's how you see those benefits from the physical training. And so, yeah, and so it, that's not possible uh, in a lot of times in the fire service. Um, and I would say, too, that I am not, um, I am not an expert in, in this, the fire service. Um, and so... Neither, neither are we. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to keep you on the spot. Anyone can answer yeah. this, but just to get the momentum, because I, I look at this like a court case and the more voices that actually have wellness experience, the, the higher chance there is of us changing a huge elephant in the room. So if we were able to get our firefighters in the world, especially the ones that work 56, 72 hour work weeks, or the ones that are supposed to work, for example, 48, but are understaffed and mandatory and all that stuff. If we gave our tactical athletes more rest and recovery, would that have an impact on their mental health and their physical health and their chance of injury? Yeah, I would absolutely say 100% that the recovery is where, is where the, the magic happens, is where you, you see the benefits. And so, um, and so, uh, that was a loaded question, James. Oh, yeah, right. You know it was. <laughs> loaded for a very good reason, though. But on the mental health side of things, you have to have the energy and resources to be able to manage your temper, to manage stressors that come your way. Um, I myself, I'm not a firefighter, but I know if I don't get a certain amount of sleep the next day, my coping resources are severely diminished. And something you know, seemingly innocuous is really going to put me into a tailspin a lot easier than if I had those resources. And you get that with rest. So and in working with firefighters one-on-one -on -one in counseling, the best we can do right now, and it's kind of disheartening to me, is find ways for them to rest and restore without the sleep component, which is pretty difficult to achieve. But that, you know, that's, that's where we are right now with the shift structure set up the way it is. The best we can do is find ways to incorporate rest, 
restoration. And we're doing that with mindfulness-based activities, meditation. That's where they're getting their rest, being able to um, to descale. Like uh, a district chief in one of the departments I was working with explained to me like this, that scales accrue each time that you go out on a call. And if nothing's being done to descale, those get so heavy that eventually they impact you in one way or another. And I really like that analogy because even snakes shed their skin. And so somewhere along the way, we as humans thought we're exempt from this process. And so kind of moving back to what yoga could possibly do if you're doing it continuously is provide a structure for that continuous descaling process. So you're descaling as the scales accrue. Yeah, Cody, anything to add? Whenever you asked that question, it just brought me back to listening to one of your previous episodes. Yeah, it just came out with uh, Allison Brager. Yeah. When she talked about the CDC's definition of sleep deficit, <laughs> I was cutting grass in a sleep deficit as I was listening to that interview. And I, I thought to myself, this is, this is some folks in our profession's norm. They live, they operate in a sleep deficit all the time and you know it it does and it it's funny but it's not whenever you think about the days when you were still on duty when you're getting a workout in and you're having the tribal moment of everybody trying to max out on bench or something like that and when you're done you might have time to get a recovery drink down your neck before you're on your way to work a code or go to a rollover mba it's you know Rest is important. There's there's no doubt about it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, I'm hoping that one day we can get our profession to, you know, understand that maybe we need at least the same work week as the bank tellers and grocery clerks of the world and not, you know, two or three days more a week. Um, but again, this is this has been a great conversation to just, you know, plant some seeds with people. So let's talk about the next study, the alpha study that you're working on. Um, so what are, what are you looking for in that? There's a, we did, since the MBTT study, which is short for Mind-Body Tactical Training, that's the terminology we used for yoga, by the way. That's how we had to package it at the beginning. <laughs> this is Mind-Body Tactical Training. And then the guys later on said, hey, wait a minute, this is yoga. I said, yes, you're onto something. Um, <laughs> but after the MBTT study, we moved into like kind of a three-phase, nine-month-long study, but it was looking at different areas. So... For Alpha, we looked at a comprehensive program. We wanted to pilot out a program that attended to both mind and body, which yoga is an example of an activity that connects the mind and body. We wanted to look at a program that's focusing on functional fitness and then uh, mindfulness-based training. So that was Alpha. And then the study that we're just wrapping up is called Bravo, and that's a complete just emphasis on one-on-one counseling, but to make sure that it is culturally congruent with the fire service, make sure that the counselor, in this case it was me, um, was not only culturally competent, but delivering the counseling in a way that might be the most engaging for firefighters. So we're testing out three different delivery modalities. We're doing traditional office visits where the guys will come and visit me um, on an off day. We're doing station visits which flips the script. It's where the counselor is coming out 
to the firefighter on shift because, like I mentioned, I found out that guys are working three to four extra jobs. There's no time to attend to mental health, um, or at least to travel to a counselor. And so this is flipping the script. It's the counselor coming to the firefighter on their home turf to see if it's um, it enables them to open up. It also normalizes counseling because I'm there with the same crew, you know, once a week or every other week. And it's a familiar face at this point. I come in, they're like, oh, it's just Amanda. And we go into our counseling session, we come out and that's it. They go on with the rest of their day. And uh, the last counseling delivery modality we're testing out is walk and talk therapy, which is the most nearest and dearest to my heart because it incorporates both your mind and your body. And the rationale there is that while you're moving or while you're talking, you're moving, it gives you a different focal point. You're out in nature, which can be incredibly therapeutic. It also situates situates, um, where you're walking side by side and that might be more culturally congruent with men, which make up the majority of the fire service. So it might be an alienating process to come into an office, sit across somebody dressed in office attire, stare down your counselor's you know, eyes and then just spill out your feelings. Well, men aren't typically socialized to do that. Women are. And that's a normal process for me, but it might not be so normal for men. And so I wanted to test out what did it look like when we were out in, um, out in nature, just walking, just kind of having a conversation. There's still counseling going on, but it's not staring down the eyes of a counselor. It's walking side by side, literally and figuratively. I had a guest on who was talking about um, doing therapy while they were kayaking. And they talked about the left-right, left-right movement. And that's obviously very um, relatable to the success of EMDR. So I can see how, again, the element of nature and the element of, you know, left-right, left-right walking and swinging of the arms would probably contribute to that being very effective as well. Yeah, the bilateral movement. That's what you're talking about. Yep, absolutely. absolutely. So right now we're just kind of in the testing phases to see does it work? Does it work with firefighters? And then we can go move on you know, from there. But all the studies that we're doing right now, they're really in the like, infancy stages of delving into these different topics, whether it's functional fitness, whether it's mind-body activities like yoga or tai chi, whether it's attending to mental health through counseling. So they're all in the infancy stages and there's so much more to go. Uh, but all we can do right now is share with you what we have. Yeah. Now, Cody, how many of the people post-study continued to do yoga on their own? Quite a few. There was actually so many people in our department that were interested in continuing yoga that we developed some type of partnership with Nolan where we were hosting yoga sessions at a specific station or at our administration building at 6.30 in the morning for folks who were getting off of the shift, like the shift that had the highest demand for it, the department brought her back in to do more sessions. I think, I think it's petered off now. I don't know that it's still happening. We'd have to revamp it, yeah. But there was an immediate demand after this study where people wanted to continue yoga. 
And the same happened with the other department that we conducted the study with. Um, in that case, the, their department didn't have the resources to continue to pay the yoga instructors, but the guys were willing to put together a collection and pay for the yoga instructor to come back just out of their own pockets. And so it, it, it didn't work as far as a, like a building location, but there was a, so much of an interest that it, it impressed me that the guys were willing to say, hey, we're going to pay for this because we found benefits and we'd like to continue. So both departments showed interest in continuing. Beautiful. Well, I know, I mean, like I said, I use Headspace, so it's guided. Um, I actually had the founder, uh, Andy Puttickham, on the show. But uh, that's great one-on-one. But again, you put it on a tablet, you, I forget what the term is, but you get your phone to display on the TV. You can do it for a whole room for people, a room of people. And the same with Yoga First Responders. I know they have a whole bunch of free sessions on there too. Mm-hmm. So, you know, even if you're not able to get an actual um, instructor to stand in front of you, I mean, in the meantime, that's another option is you just, you know, cast someone's app onto a TV and then, you know, the whole station can do it together that way. I know one of the challenges that was brought up is during the study, they were put out of service. And so there wasn't, they could attend the task at hand without in the background, you know, thinking that you're going to be called out for something. Um, And so that was a challenge in getting those yoga sessions back up and running. They were no longer out of service. And so there, there are some stations that are just, so busy that an hour's worth of time without a call just doesn't happen often. Yeah. Well, I, mean, I almost challenge people to do it off going. So the end of your shift, you've been relieved, you get together and find a 20 minute yoga practice. Because one of the things that I've noticed that we do terribly in the fire service is the punctuation of shifts. You know, you may have worked a PD code, you know, 4 a.m., you finally got back, you cleaned all your gear, it's shift change, and now you jump in your car and you go straight home. And just taking time to walk, to meditate, to swim, whatever, you know, something, something to, to stop the firefighter and go back to being the husband, the father, the mother, whatever it is, is very, very important. Well, if you do as a group, a short yoga session together off shift, we are not worried about getting banged out on a call. I think that would be a great window for people to kind of take advantage of. Right along the lines of what you just said, um, with the office study, we had them do a, a functional training program that involved a dynamic warm-up and then kind of a strength power-based uh, movements, and then a 20-minute high-intensity functional training circuit, and then a uh, core movement at the end, uh, which took about 20 to 30 minutes. And then we had them uh, listen to uh, an app. Um, the Calm app. The Calm app. And they kind of went through a, a meditation. And so kind of just like what you're saying, where you go through the high intensity stressful period and then you kind of get off shift and then there's that calmness and so taking the time and so you know with firefighting it's just amazing how you go from zero to 100 and then you kind of go back down to zero and so uh so that's kind of what that uh alpha study training program was designed to do is to to ramp up pretty high and then to have a period where it's kind of going back to that parasympathetic reactivation um, of 20 minutes where they're all off duty or um, uh, out of service, I'm sorry, for that whole session um, and to, to come back down after that high intensity training. 
Absolutely. Well, Adam, staying with you, I want to hit on one more point before we just make sure if there's anything else that we want to touch on. You mentioned about studying hydration in the sporting space prior to coming to the fire service. What are some of the takeaways that you see maybe that you brought from the sports side? Um, you know, what, what does hydration look like as far as our job and obviously our gear just you know, draws the the fluid out of us. I've always worked in either California or Florida, so as an Englishman, I'm always dying in my gear. But um, you know, what are some of the things that you've you've witnessed or observed in the fire service that that maybe we don't do as well as a sporting community? Yeah, I think um, I think so. I, be- I believe it's uh, region dependent too, and so maybe up north, it's hydration is potentially not as much of an issue. Um, we're, you know, less uh, busy stations, but uh, down here for sure in Baton Rouge, the heat and humidity, I mean, with, even without gear, you're constantly losing water throughout the day. Um, and then you add on putting the gear on where it's a uncompensable uh, heat environment where you're not able to, to sweat and to release heat um, in the same amount that you're gaining, you're building generating heat. Um, and so uh, even when we've done uh, the studies in the, the late fall and spring, it seems like guys are still sweating like crazy. And that um, with all that gear, just that the inability to compensate for the heat that you're generating um, definitely indicates a need to, to stay hydrated. Um, and I think it's with the athletic community, the emphasis is massive on hydration. You have water breaks, you have sport beverages, all these things that are kind of targeted. I'm an athlete. This is what I drink. I drink water, I drink Gatorade, um, and it's emphasized, you know, a lot. Where in the fire service, um, from what I've seen, it's definitely emphasized. There's definitely not a lack of water. Uh, all the trucks have coolers with um, water bottles that are always stocked. Um, but I think kind of just like in daily life where Sometimes, at least for me, I'll go through my workday and forget to drink water just because I'm not thinking about it. And I think sometimes in the fire service too, that can happen where, um, you know, immediately after a call, you're, okay, I got a drink, so you drink a bottle or two, but then throughout the day, potentially you're not triggered to, uh, to drink another bottle or to, um, to, to monitor your urine color is a kind of a simple way to, to check your hydration. Right, there's no like formal practice time. So I know I drink before, during, and after practice. It's like the practice is spontaneous. The practice is going to the call. Yep. And along those lines, you know, with athletes, okay, we want you to drink water before practice or before a game. During the game, we'll have, you know, a carbohydrate electrolyte beverage to replenish electrolytes and uh, carbohydrate. And then afterwards, we have a protein drink, chocolate milk, something that helps you recover. Where in, you know, the fire service, it's maybe not as easy to, you know, I guess you could, but to stay hydrated because you never know when game, when the game time is. Um, and then in the fire, you know, you're not always able to, I need a, I need a carbohydrate electrolyte drink or something. And then afterwards, um, you might go on another call a second later. And so, or you're tired, you got to wash your gear, you have other things to do. So you can't, you know, nobody else is making, you know, uh, protein drinks for you, like potentially in athletics, where they just hand you, this is exactly what you need. And so the, uh, yeah, because you're on duty, it's not like once the game is over, you can do whatever you need to do to recover. With firefighters, it's not, they don't, uh, aren't afforded that same time and ability to, to recover um, or to rehydrate. 
In the same same way that athletics There's no designated time. Mm -hmm. was a, exactly. Official time to Official time. rehydrate, restore. Yeah. You can go back to back calls and do that. Well, you touched on Gatorade as well. Like I'm, I'm a UF grad, so I can say this, but <laughs> you know, Gatorade back in the day used to be fructose and some other things. And then sadly it's morphed into high fructose corn syrup. And, um, you know, it doesn't seem to be a very good choice when it comes to the spectrum of electrolyte drinks that are out there. Um, yet in rehab, which is normally when we saw them show up when we're at a fire and the, the big rehab truck shows up, that's one of the first thing that comes up. And to me, again, that's a, you know, a lack of education, but there are so many other products that would do so much better at putting the actual electrolytes back in these body rather than just giving them a, a shot of, uh, sugar, which may actually dehydrate them even more. Absolutely. It is. I'll never forget. Um, when I was younger, you know, you have Gatorade and it tasted terrible. I did not like Gatorade because it was a lot of sodium and I'm sure it had a lot more electrolytes and it tasted bad. So as a kid, you know, I don't want to drink it because it doesn't taste good. But now Gatorade is delicious. And so people drink it more, but it has definitely gone to the, the higher sugar, higher fructose corn syrup and less electrolytes. If you look at it, it might be 120 uh, milligrams of sodium, you know, in a serving. And that, that's not very much at all. And but it tastes better. And so it definitely seems like they're going more towards the, the flavor and um, uh, and losing the, the functionality of it. But uh, there's certainly products on the market. My High is a product that's used by St. George. Um, and we're actually doing a study with right now uh, to see if, you know, if that, that product, which has um, on average maybe 500 to 600 milligrams of sodium, um, closer to 100 milligrams, I believe, of potassium and a little bit of sugar, 12 grams per serving, um, and so uh, 25 grams. And they also have a, a sugar-free option. And so it seems like that um, that option is a little bit more functional in instead of uh, the the name more name brand products like Gatorade and Powerade. Um, but and even then, you wonder if just drinking more water is that the solution? Is it, you know, how much certain guys sweat more than others, potentially the sodium and electrolytes in, uh, in a firefighter's diet uh, could affect those things as well. And so with hydration, there's so much that goes in that goes into that. Um, in addition, you know, to uh, um, whether you want to call or not, being able to, you know, to, uh, to only uh, replenish what you need and not uh, not necessarily drinking a lot of, you know, sodium beverages when you didn't sweat that much and you have a high sodium diet. And so, you know, with athletics, they can prescribe, you know, exact amounts of nutrients or electrolytes. And with the fire service, it's not quite the same. And with individual variability, um, it's just so much more confusing, it seems like. Um, and in the end, though, staying hydrated, drinking water uh, seems to be the the classic uh, uh, solution to rehydration, and then it's that extra little bit where replenishing electrolytes accurately is the kind of the cherry on top of completing the rehydration process. Yeah, beautiful. So after after that came to the forefront, James, whenever the hydration study started. And I'm, I'm not a big fan of legislating health and wellness, but uh, another proactive step that our department took is once this got 
highlighted, this issue got highlighted with some scientific backing. First thing they did was, uh, unfortunately it came in the form of a policy, but there's nothing mandatory about it. And the policy simply states, your battalion chiefs are gonna bring around enough my high to each station for one firefighter to have one packet of my high for electrolyte replacement. So I can, I can drink on it throughout the day. I can choose to use it after my workout, whatever the case may be. It's here if you want it. Nobody is telling you that you have to drink it. And that was the original response. Well, they can't make me drink that on duty. You're right. And they're not going to. They're telling you that it's here if you want it. I take full advantage of it. Now, in the rehab setting on a scene after a fire or major accident, the shift safety officer has a box and every battalion chief has a box. You can drink as much of it as you want, but they have allotted the ability for us to like preload electrolytes or, or kind of maintain our own hydration, but you can't legislate that. Some guys aren't going to drink it just because the department gave it to them and said, here, here's your option. Well, I'm not drinking that. You can't make me do that. So we, we are taking one step to try to stay ahead of that. And I'm hoping that that's going to be an evolutionary process as the results of this study come in. Along those lines, uh, and I might be wrong too, but to, for firefighters to think of themselves themselves as tactical athletes could potentially shift the uh, how they behave. And so, Cody, you can jump in if you think uh, what you think. But talking to firefighters, when we presented this idea that you are a tactical athlete, I think some guys have kind of rolled their eyes or, you know, they don't necessarily think of themselves as that um, because it's kind of a fancy, cool term. Um, but really, if you are a tactical athlete, you would behave like a tactical athlete would behave. They recover, they stay hydrated, they exercise, they attend to their mental health because that's what an athlete does. That's, you know, that's your, um, that's your persona, that's, that's your identity. And so that's how I behave. Um, and so, right. Uh, a, um, a tactical athlete would rehydrate and would, um, you know, be attentive to those things. And so shifting the focus to emphasize that could lead to behavior change, um, yeah, indirectly. Right. In order to do that, we have to provide resources to firefighters, which is why we took what we're, what we've been doing with athletics and moved it over to tactical athletes so they can start dabbling in those resources, see if they do work. So they can attend to optimizing the performance, both on the mental fitness and physical fitness side of things. Yeah, I think that's where the conversation falls short in a lot of these wellness initiatives is a lot of times it's put squarely on the responder. And of course, ownership is part of it. But the other side is environment. And if we're going to treat our men and women like tactical athletes, which we should be, and we should be holding ourselves accountable, because as I said, a 28-story climb with 100 pounds of gear before you even go to work, few people could do that. So we are, you know, a special kind of athlete. But you also have to have, as we touched on before, the rest and recovery. You know, if you ask Drew Brees to to only sleep twice in a week, I doubt they'd be winning Super Bowls. You know, so if and and it's always a kind of finger pointing. It's always, oh, it's their fault. They're not they're not owning their sleep when they go home, or they're they're taking extra jobs. And then you know, the other one is, well, you know, it's your fault. You're not giving us any tools. Well, it's both. It's both of those. And so you know, I think a department looking at their men and women as tactical athletes and asking, what can we do to promote rest and recovery so they are as close to baseline as possible when they return to shift. 
and therefore that they're not broken by the time they transition out is as an important conversation as, hey, firefighters, we need you to meditate and do yoga. We need you to work out. We need you to get your gear on and climb stairs. You know, if we have both those conversations, I think that's how we truly move the needle. Absolutely. You think like a lot of football teams, they're not allowed to do two-a-days because that's, you know, harmful to health and all those things. And so overtraining, exactly, risk overtraining. And so if you ask a you know a professional football player to play two games in one day or back to back, it's like, no, we're not gonna do that because that's just not a, a good thing to do. And and so, you know, with firefighters exactly uh, treating them like tactical athletes and absolutely. And when we hope that's what we can do and that's how we can improve the landscape um, of the fire services, not only to do the research, but make sure that the the findings that we the findings from our research that is pushed out, uh, not just to like mental health clinicians like myself, but other researchers and other fire departments, which is why we're so thankful for you and this platform. So people can kind of hear what we're doing here and potentially try to implement it with their own departments. They have a starting point. At least. Absolutely. Yeah. And the research is so important. I mean, you know, one of the things that, that I hear, which, as I said at the beginning of the interview, is good or bad is, oh, we need to see the data. Well, some of it is just common sense. Like I said, the work week is just a place that we found ourselves that makes zero sense. But the more research there is out there on all these different elements, the more you're adding to that case to get people to finally acknowledge that, you know, we're we're working our people the way we did in 1910. And the fire service looks a lot different now. Um, you know, the, the Dalmatians are less, the horse and carts are less, you know, the, the medical calls are more, but the more data we have, um, then, you know, the, again, the more, the more we're stacking up the case to not only give our responders tools on their own wellness and their department's tools on how to create wellness, but also the, the real elephants in the room, the suicide epidemic and the, you know, the addiction epidemics, another huge elephant in the room when it comes to mental health, you know, the injury rate that we have, that we can actually address some of the huge, huge elements that would truly, I mean, have a paradigm shift in our wellness, which, you know, one of the, one of which is shift work. We can't get around 24 hour shifts, but we can improve the space between those shifts to allow our men and women to recover properly. That's where we hope is in doing this and doing the research that we're doing and then for me translating it to clinical practice as we start providing the how. So we know the what, we know the landscape, we know that firefighters are dealing with dehydration, sleep deprivation, post-traumatic stress, everything that goes with post-traumatic stress that we discussed before is so we want to focus on the not so much the what, but how, how do we address it? What's it look like? Well, for me, it looks like yoga. It looks like mindfulness practice. It looks like um, counseling sessions in a different context, like the station visits. Or So that's kind of our goal. Yeah. Is it feasible to take firefighters out of service um, every time they're on duty for an hour to perform physical uh, fitness exercises? Um, at their station? Do they have to come to headquarters? What's the logistics of implementing a mind-body tactical training? Um, yeah. Program, yeah. Beautiful. Well, is there anything else? Are there any other areas that you want to make sure we touch on before we wrap up? 
You had like a list, didn't you? <clears throat> the well, I, I have a couple things written down, but in the very beginning, we talked about them want you want to be able to seek AFG funding and provide this to essentially whoever asks for it. If they if, if there's a fire department out there that can logistically support this and can get AFG funding for it, James, picture a world how AFG gives out millions of dollars every year and this being an option to invest in the health and wellness of ABC fire department, you know, three fire departments in each state get the opportunity to do this. Your, your quasi control group of firefighters here at St. George and over there was approximately how many people? 108. 108. And being able to take the results that were found here and shotgun blast it through the United States would be nothing short of a miracle. James, I watched her give her dissertation defense when she became a doctor. And all I could think about when I watched this data in the presentation is given a boots on the ground, firefighter friendly version of this at FDIC. Can you imagine the change that would happen in the fire service? It'd be amazing. I think we're on our way there. I don't know how long it's going to take us, but I think we're on our way there. What was the second thing you were going to mention? Already addressed it. It was the my high, the hydration stuff that we're doing. <laughs> Beautiful. Anyone else before we uh, transition out? I don't think so. No, we'll keep you here for days. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, it's been a great conversation. We've you know we've hit some some very important points. Obviously, spent some time a lot of time on on the study, which was the intention of this conversation. But you know, been to some other places too. So I want to thank you all for taking the time today, for sharing your work, for the work you're, you know, continuing to do. Um, it's much needed. I mean, as I touched on at the beginning, there's not a lot of research in the fire service. Some stuff we don't need to research, just common sense. Some stuff we can absolutely pull from the military because it is apples to apples. But some of these areas that are specific to our profession you know, this research does need to be done so we can, you know, move the needle and, and get people to realize that, as you said, you know, my big thing is, is a push on many, many areas, but today, actionable right now, that this can start helping the individual responder improve their mental health and their physical health. So I want to thank you all for being so generous with your time today. Thank you for having us, James. We really appreciate it. We do. And the, the platform, like I mentioned, that you provide is just so incredibly valuable to have an opportunity to speak, to reach firefighters. That's hard to do. We could, we could publish articles and we're reaching the scientific community only. I don't know many firefighters that read scientific publications. I don't even really <laughs> scientific publications or writing them. <laughs> But like your platform is, that's why it's all the more important because it's reaching the people that we want to reach. So we thank you.